Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 142 for the week ending February 15th, 2018, the Supply Chain Edition. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Today you're in for a real treat because Jay and I are joined by Pamela Ferris walsh She is a senior advisor, Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs at the U.S. State Department Office of Threat Finance Countermeasures. She joins us to give her reflections on the Ascent Supply Chain Conference that Jay and I both attended this week and also has some great commentary and comments on our commentary throughout the podcast. In this podcast, we take a look at supply chain issues, including the imbroglio that Ambiser Bush finds itself over the Bon and Viv ad. We take a look at KPMG execs going to trial over the alleged theft of PCAOB protocols, an FCPA plea from a Hawaiian businessman, why the ethics portion of a compliance and ethics program is more important now than ever, and why avoiding female colleagues is not the answer to the Me Too movement. We take a look at the continued problems with healthcare in China, some great digital marketing strategies for compliance, how organizational culture impacts compliance. We take a look at biomedical metrics and data. We talk about the five-part podcast series celebrating Affiliated Monitor's 15th anniversary, and once again, give our reflections on the most excellent Ascent Supply Chain Conference, which was held in San Diego this week. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 142 for the week ending, February 18th excuse me, February 15th, 2019, the What's in Your Supply Chain edition. Jay and I were panelists this week at the Ascent Compliance Supply Chain Conference, and so we are coming to you live in a special recording from Andes Hotel in San Diego, California, where I am stunned to report it's rainy. So yes, indeed, it does rain in Southern California, even if that Southern California is San Diego. Jay, welcome. Thanks, Tom. It was uh, fun to do our inaugural in-person panel. Uh, Normally we're doing this uh, over the phone every Friday, so it's nice to be in person. And uh, do we also have another guest with us? We do. We have Pamela Fierst Walsh. That's right. She is the Senior Advisor, Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs at the State Department. She was here uh, at the conference as well in just a fascinating panel uh, that she participated in. I guess it was a a fireside chat. So, Pamela, first of all, uh, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Pamela's going to join us with some of uh, our collective reflections of the uh, Ascent Supply Chain Conference. But first, we wanted to kind of go through the stories that highlighted our interest 
And Jay, I'm just going to fire off with KPMG. And uh, KPMG execs went to trial this week in New York City. Uh, this is the alleged theft of audit protocols from the PCAOB. For those who don't recall, uh, five KPMG uh, partners and senior executives were charged with uh, bribing uh, a PCAOB employee to get the audit protocols for when KPMG audits would be audited by the PCAOB. Uh, this story broke about a year ago. It was a huge scandal for KPMG. The five partners were fired. Um, four of those partners, for reasons completely unclear to me, have chosen to go to trial. One has pled guilty and is a cooperating witness. Uh, this is going to be a black eye for everybody. So, um, But as a recovering trial lawyer, I can think of nothing than uh, going mano in mano and single combat warrior style at trial. So... But we had an FCPA case, Jay, uh, this week. You want to tell us about that? Sure. This comes to us from um, Harry Kasson at the FCPA blog. And the Department of Justice announced on Tuesday that a Hawaii-based businessman admitted to bribing officials from, and we haven't heard this one in a while, Micronesia. Uh, Frank James Leon, 43, pleaded guilty to conspiracy to violate the anti-bribery provisions of the FCPA and to commit federal fraud. Uh, Master Halbert, 44, a citizen of Micronesia, was charged in a criminal complaint, filed in Hawaii with one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering, and was arrested Monday in Honolulu. The complaint against Halbert was filed January 24th. Uh, basically, the DOJ contended that between 2006 and 2016, Leon's Hawaii-based engineering and consulting firm bribed officials, including Halbert, to obtain and retain contracts with the FSM government valued at nearly $8 million. Leon also arranged for a vehicle to be purchased in Hawaii and shipped to FSM for Halbert's personal use. Leon is scheduled to be sentenced on May 13th. So even though Dick Casson has uh, retired as the publisher of the FCPA blog, his son Harry ably has found his first uh, corruption story to report on and the new regime. Tom, what's up next on your side? So uh, what's in your supply chain? Uh, we're here at the Ascent Supply Chain Conference, but that's not the primary reason I asked that question. Uh, for those of you who may have watched the Super Bowl, you may have re recalled the Bon and Viv Mermaid commercial. Well, it turned out that an actress who auditioned uh, or went to a casting call for that commercial uh, felt she was uh, harassed and bullied when she was told that she had to wear a bikini and dance for 30 seconds for a commercial where she was not wearing a bikini and not dancing. Uh, and she found this offensive and was basically told, this is the way we do business, honey. Um, and so she ended up writing a blog post about that, and uh, it sat there. And sometime after the Super Bowl, someone put the blog post together with the commercial that this woman had actually auditioned for, the Bon and Viv commercial, and the black eye was delivered not to the casting director who was at the audition, not to the casting company that allowed the actions to happen, but to Anheuser-Busch. And there were multiple questions uh, asked of Anheuser-Busch about uh, why they would allow this in their supply chain when, frankly, they probably had no idea uh, that this casting agency was involved. It was so bad that the stock price of AB InBev, the parent of Anheuser-Busch, took a $3 a share stock hit over 24 hours. 
So if you've ever wondered what reputational damage could do to um, the stock price of your company, this is a prime example. And this is about as indirect a damage or an indirect a way as you can think about your supply chain. It's at least four levels down or four tiers. Matt Kelly wrote a great piece about this, uh, really focusing on how you need to rethink your approach to risk in your supply chain. Matt and I considered it uh, in-depth on this week's Compliance Into the Weeds, and we, of course, linked to both, so I hope uh, you will consider that. But Matt really wrote a, a great blog post on this, and I commend it to everyone. Yes, I, I agree, Tom. Um, next up, uh, we've got something from our colleague Mike Volkov at the Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog. This is the first of two Me Too stories that we're going to address today. And um, Mike is thinking about the urgency of now corporate ethics in the Me Too movement. And uh, basically, he talks about some of the major scandals that we've reported on in the weeks preceding Google, uh, CBS with Les Moonves, the U.S. gymnastics team, and the U.S. Congress, just to name a few. And he says, if there ever was a compelling argument for ethics and compliant professionals to reiterate the importance of a culture of ethics, now is the time. And uh, he goes on to talk about um, what exactly happened at Google, that Google suffered serious reputational and business harm when its staff around the world staged an unprecedented series of walkouts to protest the company's treatment of women. There are at least 48 cases where incidents were reported, and the executive in um, question was let go, but none of these uh, incident reports were taken to fruition. Uh, basically, uh, Mike continues, and he says that, as demonstrated in numerous high-profile incidents, companies have failed to exercise proper oversight, investigation, and consistent resolutions involving senior executives in misconduct. So this is just, uh, you know, really adding uh, insult into injury, and um, we'll pick up the, uh, the next article uh, a little bit later on in the podcast. But now, um, actually, Tom, you're going to tell us about um, Ingrid Friedan over at Navex and what she's thinking about Me Too. Right. So uh, she wrote a really good blog post in Navex Ethics and Compliance Matters blog. And uh, she points out correctly that male colleagues of females who do not um, mentor them, who do not uh, meet them socially as they would meet their male colleagues who basically go out of their way to avoid them for fear of being accused of harassment or violating the law because that's called discrimination. And when you discriminate based uh, a, against a protected class, i.e. females, then uh, that's called an EEOC violation. You know, the real easy answer for this, guys, is keep your hands to yourself, Keep your lewd comments inside your head. If you've got to share them, share them with the boys. Uh, You can meet with a woman. You can mentor a woman. You can socially meet with a woman. You can play a round of golf with a woman. You can do all the things you can do with your male colleagues if you just exercise a little propriety. So um, the... um, Pamela, do you have some thoughts for us yeah, on this? Yeah, I do. So I want to I be super clear that my intervention here is in a personal capacity on this topic, but I, I can't possibly, as a, as a woman in the workplace, um, you know, not, not offer my two cents. I'd be cautious before you encourage male counterparts to, if they've got to say something, say it just to the boys, right? I know what you meant. It's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a 
an invitation not to say it to the female, but I think it's really important that male colleagues understand collectively, even in the absence of women, that when their colleagues aren't present, it doesn't matter if they, if they, it, it does, it does still matter if they say inappropriate things, right? Like that whole, um, that whole misguided logic about locker room talk is just, is really unhelpful, I think. I, I think that continues to help foster pockets where it's not where it's not okay and the other thing I would say is that it's not just about like lewd comments and it's not just about offensive behavior that you know you you think is is pretty obvious it's really it's about inclusion like in general right some of my more um, impactful experiences um, learning alongside male colleagues particularly when I was um, you know at a time when I was studying with a lot of male colleagues was I noticed the male colleagues who talked to me like I was a person and the ones who talked to me like I was the female that they had to be nice to, you know. Um, it just, it, it, we're people, you know. It, it doesn't have to be harder than that. I, I've seen some really great satire, um, particular, particularly on British TV, that, that outlines this pretty quickly. So I'll just leave it at that. Like, I don't, I don't think you need to um, be too prescriptive. Like, be a, be a human to, to the women and, and see where it goes. You know, that's a great point, and I would just follow up by saying, just as it would be inappropriate and I would chastise anyone who used the N-word in front of me, or if I chose to use that word, uh, and that to- that acts and those words would not be tolerated in a locker room, in a bar, or any other location, lewd comments about female employees or women in general should not be tolerated either. And the thing I have derived most personally from the Me Too movement is harassment, discrimination and bullying are not the responsibility of the person it happened to. It's the responsibility of everyone. And if I see it, I should say something. And if I engage in it, I should be told to stop it. And if somebody else engages in it, I should tell them to stop it. So that's a great point. Thank you. So uh, Jay, is healthcare in China still a minefield for compliance? Uh, Again, this comes to us from the FCPA blog from our colleague Howard Wang. He is at um, Control Risks in their Shanghai office. And uh, he basically says that, well, it's been over five years since the start of the GlaxoSmithKline case that rocked China, that there are still issues, uh, potential corruptions issues within the healthcare sector. And many companies still do not view sponsorships and donations as carrying much, if any, compliance risk. That is simply not the case. And as examples in the past year, we found companies that have made sponsorships or donations with the knowledge that some of the money is going into the pockets of officials running academic associations, donations that are explicitly linked to decisions on whether a company's product will be approved for sale or insurance reimbursement, uh, no donation, no approval. Those have been uh, those have taken place. It's also implied that not all the money is being used for academic or charitable purposes, and there is a reluctance to scrutinize what the funds are used for. It is unseemly to ask too many questions that require performance evidence. So um, we link to the article in the show notes, but um, you know there are issues here with dealing with whistleblowers and just dealing with the level of um, attention that companies, especially healthcare companies, are paying in China. So this, um, I'm sure we will see this back uh, on our Friday uh, lineup in the future. 
And Jay, I just uh, recall that uh, you know in 2018 we had an FCPA enforcement action where the Chinese business unit, as an entire business unit, was engaged in bribery and corruption by stealing money from the corporate office to pay bribes. So it's still an ongoing problem in China. And uh, if there was ever a, a cautioned, cautionary tale to be ever vigilant, uh, it is certainly doing business in the healthcare industry in China. So next up, Tom, we've got our colleague Sean Friedman um, writing in Corporate Compliance Insights, and he's got some strategies on digital marketing. What's uh, Sean thinking about? So uh, first up, uh, full disclosure, I do contract work with Hanzo, who is Sean's employer, but that does not uh, uh, stop me from talking about this most excellent blog post he had. It's on the Hanzo site, but we found it on Corporate Compliance Insights. And what Sean does is Sean's a marketing expert, and he takes three pieces of digital marketing and analyzes them from the compliance perspective for two reasons. One, do they violate any regs or other laws? And then two, what can the compliance practitioner take away from these marketing digital marketing pieces? It's really a great method or a great way for a compliance practitioner to think about the messaging of compliance. Sean focuses on branding and personal messaging from these companies. And think about your compliance program in that way. How are you branding your compliance program internally? How are you uh, getting the personal message of compliance out of the ivory tower and down into the field where it's fully operationalized as the Department of Justice uh, requires? So it's a lengthy piece, but he's embedded uh, the digital examples directly in the blog post. And I think you'll find it uh, really useful, if not thought-provoking. Okay, so next up, we've got a great piece. Uh, It seems that we're usually running one or two pieces each week. This is from NYU School of Law, the program on corporate compliance and enforcement. And this is a wonderful article from Allison Taylor talking about how understanding organizational culture can help us assess compliance programs. And I don't even think I'm going to be able to do justice in my summary. So we, uh, we both recommend that you read it. Uh, it's attached to the show notes. But in 2015, Allison undertook a literature review and interviewed 23 anti-corruption experts and practitioners to explore a very simple question. What does organizational culture look like in a corrupt company? And basically, uh, she was doing a direct challenge to the long-dominant theories of bad apples or rogue employees. And her research, which is summarized in the article, found that although integrity scandals involving fraud, corruption, and other issues differ in cause and trajectory, they correlate consistently with a particular organizational and team conditions. The archetypal corrupt team sits far away from headquarters under a secret controlling leader. The team is widely regarded as successful and high-performing, but hoards information and avoids scrutiny. Members exhibit fierce loyalty to one another and are driven by sense of urgency, fear, competitive pressure, and short time horizon. Does it sound like any of the companies that we've spoken about for the last two to three years? Mm, I can't imagine any. So she goes on uh, within the article to talk about uh, incentives, which we've spoken about before, corrupt incentives, oversight, leadership, inclusion, norms and values, and stakeholder trust. So it's a, it's a real instructive article, and we uh, both recommend you take a look at it. Tom, uh, next up, 
is uh, the weekly, I'm sorry, we have another article from NYU uh, talking about have you been microchipped? So, uh, Jay, first let me ask you, have you been microchipped? Uh, no, but I'm you, sure Millie and Michaela would like me to be microchipped. Have you microchipped the, the girls? They would never stand still long enough. How about the dog? Laka. Wow. No. For the record, I would never be microchipped. I think my husband would be in an instant if it enabled more efficiency in his daily life. And yes, my dog is microchipped, but she's a rescue, so she's attached to somebody else's account. So hopefully I'll get her back if anything happens. So uh, I am not microchipped, uh, but my two rescue dogs are microchipped. Um, But that's not the microchip we're talking about. We're talking about uh, not only microchipping of people, but also biometric privacy. And this is a really, if not excellent, certainly disturbing article about the types of commercial biometric privacy data collection, including voice samples, fingerprints, retina scans, facial geometry, and of course, microchipping. And the question becomes, who owns that? Have you signed away your rights to that if you engage in that? A case was brought in the Illinois State Court that uh, for a teenage boy who was fingerprinted for a prize at Six Flags, and that fingerprint ended up being sold. His mother brought suit on his behalf, and the Illinois Supreme Court held that you do not have to have uh, injury or sustained damages to ha- bring a claim. But it really brought up for me a much larger uh, discussion about information that I think most of us thought was private, uh, yet it's just information and it's just data, and it may be treated the same way Facebook treats our clicks and our likes, that that's information that they can take and sell to third parties. So um, for those people that have been microchipped or those who haven't, I think this is going to be a, a topic that we all have to think about going forward. Where do you think Americans will shake out on that? I'm being microchipped? Yeah. Well, certainly my wife would suggest that I be microchipped. <laughs> sure. Uh, and I, I think there would be a large revolt yeah. uh, if uh, there was a mandatory microchipping uh, of Americans. So do you think then that people, people then would obviously make a distinction between the type of data that gets shared unknowingly among tech companies, as we're hearing about in the news now, and make a distinction between that, which... which it's highly personal, IDs your physical location at any point, conceivably, and and the physical presence of a microchip makes that a distinction. I think it, it would be a distinction only in terms of level of awareness mm-hmm. of the information that's being collected on you, whether it's mm-hmm. by your employer, whether mm-hmm. it's by the government or anyone in between. I mm-hmm. think uh, many of us had not thought about biometric data, certainly from the commercial perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. We'll see what happens. So, Tom, over the past week, um, you've done a wonderful job uh, helping my colleague Vin Siani celebrate the uh, 15th anniversary of Affiliated Monitors. What were some of the things that you and Vin spoke about this week? So, Jay, we had a great podcast series this week, um, once again sponsored by AMI, where we literally celebrated Vin, Vin's idea, Vin's company, and how you guys, the rest of you all, have brought it forward and grown it into the leading independent monitoring company in the United States. We started with his idea, and 
you know, it's rare as a professional you get to think up something and do it. You see a need and you fill that need. And he certainly did that by creating independent monitors, taking the ideas that were floating around in the 90s and making it a true profession. He talked about how he had to sit down with regulators and convince them it was in their regulatory interest to have a corporate monitor that can help a recalcitrant company or recalcitrant person through a deferred prosecution agreement or other type of enforcement mechanism other than disbarment, other than suspension of license or something else. He talked about the uh, the early days and how he expanded the use of independent monitors. Most intriguing for me was the marriage of corporate monitorships and the rise of uh, corporate compliance and ethics programs, uh, how the Department of Justice saw independent monitors as a way to move the compliance ball forward. And finally, uh, he talked about three of uh, the things that it meant the most to him uh, in the last 15 years, and then where he sees both independent monitors and the company going forward. It's a fascinating series. It's really the entire sweep of the uh, modern FCPA enforcement because Vin uh, founded the company in 2004, and that's really when modern FCPA enforcement ramped up. Uh, I, I came in a little bit later than that in 07, but I've seen a lot of the same things, and it was a fascinating exploration of uh, independent monitors, compliance and ethics programs, and enforcement in a wide variety of levels. So besides being in uh, San Diego today for the Supply Chain Conference, uh, in two weeks, Tom and Louis Sapperman are going to be joined by Sean Freeling for a Hanzo-sponsored webinar on February 28th. Uh, there's a link to sign up for it, and uh, basically, they're going to be looking at the intersection of corporate compliance programs and corporate communications and marketing, learn about knocking down silos and using social media and your compliance plan. So please do check that out. And uh, Tom, uh, any thoughts on... Um, the conference? How well, should we do this? Well, actually, what I wanted to start with is Pamela as our guest. Oh, thanks, guys. I was wondering if you could maybe just talk about, I was really struck uh, in your presentation about how collaborative your work is mm-hmm. and how much you work with uh, a wide variety of companies in these issues. So if you could say a few words about that and then maybe your impressions of the conference. Yeah. So again, thanks for letting me kind of interlope on your weekly podcast here. This is a, a real fun treat for me. Uh, yeah. You know, I was invited this week by Ascent Compliance to speak about U.S. kind of policies and and, um, and posture and viewpoints on conflict minerals, which in the, in the most basic sense applies to Dodd-Frank 1502 and compliance with that reporting rule. Um, and as you guys know, as I'm sure your learned audience knows, SEC filings are uh, mandated under Section 1502, and um, and you know it's it's all about whether or not your product or your supply chain is using three T's, tin, tin, and tungsten, or gold in a product or uh, or manufacturing it, um, and. And there's a lot of kind of confusion about 1502 and where it stands, and I'd love to tell your audience it is still the law. So whether or not you file with the SEC is certainly something you should seek approval or at least uh, come to conclusion with with your legal counsel. So make that your determination that, you, that you're that you proactive about making. But I... I like your phrase, that's between you and your that's lawyer. That's between you and your lawyer, because it's, <laughs> you know, it's true. And, and we recognize that it, it's, it's a bit of an odd space, and, and there have been a lot of competing statements 
statements that have been made about it, but it is still the law, and it is something that many responsible companies take very seriously. Why do they take it seriously? Well, 1502 fundamentally was about breaking the link between conflict and the use of these minerals, not because it was going to fix the Democratic Republic of Congo or the Great Lakes region, but because it was it was one one method through which you could break the chain of funding armed groups. This this is a an, this goes back to things like the Kimberley process, right? Which was which was brought on in response to civil wars in uh, in the early 2000s and aimed at, at regulating the, the flow of conflict stones, rough diamonds, into the legitimate trade. So the, the effort to break the cycle between conflict and, and precious materials is not new. 1502 is, is a new reflection of that. What I think 1502 is, is like the harbinger of... Um, or maybe the, the symbol of, rather, is the beginning of a conversation and a continuance of a conversation about responsible supply chains and what really that means. Um, we work with companies to, one, let them know about policy on 1502, but also to illuminate them to the fact that a responsible supply chain isn't just about 1502 compliance. It's about a whole host of, of um, data points that you, as a, as a company, need to be aware of when you're sourcing materials from abroad. Are you in violation? of any sanctions? Do you have minerals from North Korea in your supply chain? Are you aware that there's now an executive order that pertains to gold coming out of Venezuela? Are you are you compliant with 1502? You know, I, there's a whole host of questions that get at responsible sourcing from a lot of different perspectives. Um, some of the speakers uh, today were talking about the UK Anti-Slavery Act. Well, there are also regulations about U- about in the U.S. about labor and, and child labor, forced labor and child labor. So there's a whole host of issues issues that um, that I love to engage with companies on. So yes, we talk about 1502, but we broaden the aperture and we make sure that they understand that for national security reasons, as well as your own economic security as a company, you, you want more information, not less about what's in your supply chain. If you have questions, contact the Department of the Treasury, OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, ask your questions. They'll help. Reach out to us at the State Department. We're happy to help guide you. Um, you know, we, we think that companies want to be on the right side of this issue. And as the modern supply chain evolves, um, the right side is going to be is going to be that much more clear. And it's but it's going to continue to be something that, that requires, as we say, due diligence. So actually, I see that as a direct link uh, to the FCPA, hmm. which uh, perhaps not in 1977 was concerned with the funding of terrorism through corruption. But uh, certainly in 2019 and in 2004, uh, the U.S. government became very concerned about the funding mm-hmm. of terrorism and creating the economic conditions which led to uh, terrorism. And many say that's one of the reasons that the FCPA enforcement ramped up back in 04, and it's certainly mm-hmm. uh, still applicable now. So uh, I really like your much more holistic view of seeing an entire uh, kind of spectrum or universe mm-hmm. of laws, uh, targeted laws, to do exactly what you said, break the cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we get we get a, a lot of outreach from a bunch of companies um, through our work with the Public-Private Alliance and Responsible Minerals Trade. And this is a public-private sector um, partnership that the State Department um, helped to, to launch in, I think, 2005. And we work with uh, an NGO that administers it, and we have over 40 members, including, you know, Apple and Boeing and Intel and HP, and then a, a slew of reputable international NGOs 
NGOs, some governmental organizations. We also have USAID in the Department of Labor. And we come together and, and talk about issues in this in this one problem set pertaining to 1502. But the, the fact is, these companies are coming forward because this is a manifestation of an important policy and procedure they have in place. But they don't just do it for 1502, right? They do it for for everything, and this is a place where, thanks to the force of law, they've been brought together and, and they want to be publicly associated with the good works. I think you're going to see more of that kind of self-identification of doing the right thing as jurisdictions like the European Union come online with their own legislation on responsible sourcing in 2021. That's not geographically focused on just DRC in the Great Lakes region of Africa. It applies broadly to a concept called conflict-affected and high-risk areas. So uh, we're, this conversation is going to be going for a long time, and, and we are really proud of, of the private sector names that come forward because it gives strength to the others who might want to, and it gives a little bit more firepower to that middle of a manager who needs to make the case to their leadership that this is important. I think a lot of speakers today made the case that this is an economic incentive for companies to know their supply chain, get on board, know more, not less, and find, find some real cost savings in the process. That's a great point. Uh, what were your, some of your reflections from the conference? Oh gosh! You mean other than my amazing presentation and, other meet, than that. and meeting you, gentlemen? <laughs> In who addition to opened my world to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in a way I haven't been exposed to since second year of law school. Uh, gosh, you know, there's there's so much energy that comes from a grouping like this, and it's it's a really valuable way to to have stakeholders come together and like share notes. I think one of the things that that it really flagged for me was how you do have those middle-level managers who are really wanting guidance and really are wanting collegiality and leadership in this space and that they do still struggle internally. And to me, that says that I need to continue with the messaging. My team needs to continue messaging you know, things like the importance of supply chain responsibility and OECD due diligence guidance, but also that we need the private sector companies who believe in this, who understand that this is an issue that's going to be with their supply chain from now until forever, to kind of build strength in numbers. Because private sector likes to hear from government to a certain extent. I don't think anybody's dancing a jig to, you know, to do it, but they listen to each other when one supply chain actor says to another supply chain actor, hey, let's get together and make sure our suppliers are really towing the line. That's, there's, there's safety in numbers there and the message gets louder. So, you know, a lot of that kind of collective, um, collective bargaining power maybe is, is, is alive and well in that room, whether or not they've tapped into the strength, I don't know, but... Tom, when we were doing our uh, penultimate session with Jared, I always love to use that word. Um, there Being was second to last, right? Yes. That's all, yeah, yeah. I, I never knew how to use it <laughs> until recently. Um, well done, well done. You had a, a, a charge that you kind of uh, made to the room that you said, I would implore you to take some of the things that we've spoken about in the FCPA arena and how they could... Um, leverage that on the supply chain. Can you uh, recount some of that message? Sure. So one of the reasons I'm so excited to work with Ascent Compliance and speak at their events is, uh, frankly, uh, my people need to hear from their people and their people need to hear from my people. There is uh, not only an incredible amount of business synergy between anti-corruption compliance and supply chain compliance, in today's uh, legal framework in today's global economic framework and in today's 
frankly, social media-driven reputational framework. You have to have robust compliance in all of these areas. Supply chain is extraordinarily, and let me emphasize, extraordinarily good at determining who is the best supplier of a product or a service. That's what they do. That's what they're there for. They do due diligence. They know the the supplier. All of the things that we need to do in anti-corruption compliance. They may look at a different list. They may have a different set of uh, priorities, but those priorities should be incorporated into an anti-corruption compliance program as well. Um, Pamela spoke about the business efficiencies, and that is precisely one of the things that can occur when you look at your supply chain from the compliance perspective. If you have 32 suppliers and 30, 30 of them supply the same product, you might be able to cut back. Uh, you might be able to uh, create some greater efficiencies in your supply chain. There's a wide variety of business outcomes that come about from compliance. For the anti-corruption compliance practitioner, supply chain compliance specialists or supply chain or procurement specialists work much more closely with third parties than typically a anti-corruption compliance practitioner does. And the techniques they use, the interactions of managing that relationship are absolutely critical for third parties on the sales side that we typically in anti-corruption compliance don't engage in. They manage that relationship much more closely because they have to, because it's a a business critical issue. So the more we can have those conversations, the more efficient companies are going to be. But if you take a step back from the legal perspective and look at enforcement, uh, the U.S. government in the form of the Department of Justice is focusing more on supply chain because that's a place that typically has not had robust anti-corruption compliance. And then from the bad guy perspective, they figured that out too. And if it's a softer target to engage in corruption through the supply chain, uh, that's where they're going to come. That's where they're going to launder money. That's where they're going to engage in sanctions uh, that not only violate U.S. law, but actually hurt U.S. policy going forward. So having this kind of conversation, attending this kind of conference, imploring supply chain professionals to go down the uh, hallway and uh, meet their chief compliance officer, have a cup of coffee with them, better yet, buy a pizza for the compliance department (laughs) and sit down and talk about what can we do together to make the company run more efficiently from a business perspective, and that's going to give you more robust compliance. You know, Tony, you make an interesting point about the DOJ's interest in enforcement and supply chain, and I wanted to flag a tool that I, I don't know how familiar your listenership is with it, but the Global Bagnitsky Executive Order um, and is an incredibly powerful tool that enables the Department of Treasury to apply sanctions on individuals for um, activities related to human rights abuses. Corruption is in there. They recently designated, well, last year designated uh, a guy named Dan Gertler. Yes. Yeah, under the Global Magnitsky Act for corrupt acts related to DRC's mining industry. Exactly. And I think that designation sent a real shockwave through the through supply chains that I might be more uh, more intimately familiar with in a way that sent a powerful message. Like you can't you can't be on the wrong side of this issue and and avoid any type of any type of uh, 
punishment, we'll say. So um, it's, a, it's an interesting and it's a powerful issue, and our tools are, um, are really important. So, uh, you know, private sector actors who want to be on the right side of it have, uh, have reason to be aware of the, the tools that are out there. And it's not just the Department of Justice. I'll sing the, the praises of my Department of Treasury colleagues, too. So, Jay, what were uh, some of your reflections? This is the first time you've attended uh, certainly a, an ascent conference, but perhaps even a supply chain conference. Yeah, um, you know, part of what I think is always really effective when you go to these kind of conferences are who's sitting on your left and who's sitting on your right. And the folks I spoke about, one of the um, women made some cooling device that went in Coca-Cola machines and Pepsi machines, and there were certain issues that she was stuck between her major client and the government because she needed to come up with a certain part that would meet specifications. And the other person that I was speaking with on my left also had uh, similar issues, but in a completely different uh, industry. So I know sometimes when we get together with the uh, anti-corruption and the FCPA crowd, everybody thinks they're really alone and they're an army of one and they're stuck in their silos. But here, the breadth of different individuals here who have a thirst for this kind of information, um, I think it just really augments what you said earlier, that we we really need to uh, start uh, developing information within this space. And uh, who knows, maybe there's room on the podcast network for uh, something uh, down the supply chain. Uh, there certainly is. And I, uh, for those who have not thought about the FCPA implications, let me just point you to the August 2017 Halliburton FCPA Enforcement Action. That was the second uh, FCPA enforcement action involving recidivist. For for first, yes, I am still a Halliburton stockholder. So yes, I took a hit on that. Nevertheless, um, uh, Halliburton got into trouble because they were required uh, by Angolan law to have a local business partner. That local business partner did not go through the third party uh, agent due diligence process. He was uh, hired by the company through its supply chain. Uh, procurement process, and the compliance function did not have visibility into that, and so this person came into the company, and then subsequently there were allegations of bribery and corruption around that individual. So it it is absolutely mandatory that your anti-corruption compliance function have visibility into the supply chain from the legal perspective, but I, I think as all of us learn today and yesterday at the conference, Having a robust and effective supply chain compliance program actually makes you more business efficient. Mm-hmm. You won't hear any argument out of me on that. That's for sure. We hear from companies all the time who say, why does anybody fight this? Are you kidding me? We started doing it and we've saved millions of dollars now that we know where our stuff's coming from and how we can make it better. It's More information's better, right? So, Jay, uh, this has been a great live recording. Uh, Big kudos to Pamela Fierce-Walsh. That's right, Fierce-Walsh. Who has joined us uh, for this podcast. Uh, Thank you so much. You've really added quite a bit, and I hope we can uh, have you back at some point. Anytime, guys. This was a lot of fun, and, uh, you know, thanks for for including me. It's it's been a great time. Jay, you want to take us home? Sure. So for Tom Fox, uh, Compliance Evangelist, myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, and our guest, Pamela Fierce-Walsh, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to this week in FCPA, episode 142, for the week ending February 15, 2019, the What's in Your Supply Chain edition. Thanks for listening, and have a wonderful weekend. Yay!
Hey, that was fun. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of This Week in FCPA, and I hope you enjoyed Pamela Ferris Walsh, who joined us today. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.